Good morning, everybody. You could uh, start by looking for the book of 2 Kings and chapter 5. That's where we'll be this morning. A little bit of a change of pace. Most of you who've been with us know we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, the book of Ephesians has very clear teachings from the Word of God to us. And um, sometimes God uses other means to communicate. We sometimes use other means to communicate. And uh, today we'll see God communicating to us with a picture. People say sometimes that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, we'll pray that the Lord will be using this picture to help us understand some of the valuable truths of his word this morning. So 2 Kings chapter 5. I'll just read it little by little because it's a long chapter and I don't want us to forget the beginning when I reach the end. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Maybe we can get the first picture up there. An artist rendition of Naaman. He lived maybe uh, 2,500 years ago. So there's no real pictures. We'll have to make do with what somebody thought he may have looked like. Um, so we find a number of things about this man, Naaman. He's the person we'll be thinking about, talking about this morning. Uh, first, he was a commander of the army of the king of Syria, so he kind of rose about as high as you can rise in this world without being born to a position. You don't rise up to become a king, you must be born king. But within the ability of rising up in success in this world, this man has reached the peak of it, the very top. also says he was an honorable man. It says he was honorable in the eyes of his master, but as we read through this passage, it seems like this was a man that was honorable in the eyes of many. He was loved by his servants. So this is what we may, may have called a good man, Naaman. But Naaman has a problem. He is a leper. He is a leper. And uh, I have another picture. I hope it's not going to gross you too much. But uh, this is what a leper looks like. I also did you all the favor of going to Wikipedia and, uh, and uh, downloading something about what leprosy is. Leprosy is a chronic infection. Chronic means it's long-lasting, and uh, it can also be a fatal infection. It'll bring you down to the grave. Caused by the bacteria, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the name of the bacteria, it is primarily a granulomatous disease of the peripheral nerves. I should have checked with Michael exactly what all that means. But uh, it attacks the, nerval, the nervous system of the body. It'll actually go after your, your nerve cells. And mucosa of the upper respiratory tract, skin lesions are the primary external sign. Skin lesions. It makes you look not very nice. Okay. Left untreated. Now, Today we can actually treat it. We can give people uh, some combination of an antibiotics for about a year, and that seems to, to stop the infection. It doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, make up for the damage that already happened to your skin. You're still going to look as bad as you did before unless they can do plastic surgery. I don't know what the options are today. But in those days, you could not treat leprosy. There was nothing you could do about it. Leprosy can be progressive, causing permanent damage to the skin, nerves, limbs, and eyes. Contrary to folklore, leprosy does not cause body parts to fall off, although they can become numb or diseased as a result of secondary infections. These occur as a result of the body's defenses being compromised by the primary disease. Secondary infections, in turn, can result in tissue loss, causing fingers and toes to become shortened and deformed as cartilage is absorbed into the body. So a pretty ugly disease. You don't want to have it. Now, the reason we're talking about it this morning and why God includes it here is 
the picture. Leprosy is often used by God as a picture of sin. So if you look at that, that's ugly. God is trying to communicate something to us through it of what sin is like. And I spent some time thinking about it, the different ways sin and leprosy are similar. And uh, I came up with four. There's probably more. The first one is that leprosy may not be visible at a distance. So the first picture we saw of Naaman, uh, he didn't look as bad. Now, they still try to make him look leprous, but because he was in the picture 30 feet away, it's not so obvious that he had leprosy. He didn't look as ugly. And the same thing is true about sin. You may look at me and say, boy, this is a pretty good guy. Here he is on a Sunday wearing a tie and uh, preaching the word of God. You know, this is not a sinner. But if you go across those walls and call my wife and say, would you come here, please? Is this your husband? Is he a sinner? She could say, yes, he is. And she would know because she's close enough to me to see my sin. So we can, we can often pretend and put a nice view on the outside with people at a distance, and um, they, won't, they won't think we're sinners, and we may even forget it ourselves. But the closer you get, the closer you look at our lives, you see those wrong things. Usually we do them in the dark, when there's nobody around. Often they happen in our heart and in our mind, and they don't show outside. But just like Naaman had leprosy, every person in this room has a disease called sin. And if you get close enough to that person, you will see it. Second, sin, like leprosy, hurts us, but we don't realize how much damage it is doing. If you uh, listen to what I was reading, one of the things leprosy does is it attacks your nerve cells, and as a result, you don't feel things anymore. And that's when things start falling off because you're not taking good care of this finger because you don't feel this finger anymore. And it may get secondary infections. You're not taking care of it. And that's when you start losing fingers and other things from leprosy. And uh, sin is the same way. We get callous to it. The first time I, I do something wrong, I feel guilty about it. The next time I do it, I don't feel quite as guilty about it. And boy, I can get used to it and just do it left and right pretty soon and not realizing how bad what I'm doing is. It makes us callous. The third thing, sin, like leprosy, creates separation. Uh, now, in these days, that may not be as significant of an issue. Someone has leprosy, we give them medicine, we don't worry about it too much. Uh, but leprosy is a communicative disease. You can get leprosy from a person that has leprosy. And so in the days when leprosy was so terrible and incurable, when someone had leprosy, he would have to leave his home, his friends, his family, and go live in a leper colony with other lepers. That's the only place he'd be allowed to live. And the law of Moses, if he was to go walk on the street and he would see someone coming ahead of him, he's supposed to cover himself and say, unclean, 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 to warn the other person not to get close to him. And uh, sin is like that in a couple of ways. One is it can create a distance between you and your loved ones. When I commit sin, practice sin, sin infuses in me, I could very well hurt the people I love. And as a result, they don't want to be near me or get too close to me, and that's a, a type of separation. But by far the most ser serious separation sin causes is separation with God. God created us to have a relationship with himself. In the Garden of Eden, we see him created the first, two, the first two persons and having a relationship with them. But when sin came, separation came into the relationship. In fact, we call it death. In the Bible, the word death means separation. We became dead. We became separated from God. And I was thinking a little bit, why is it that you know, my wife can have a relationship with me and I'm a sinner, but God cannot have a relationship with me, and I'm a sinner. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, my wife, like me, is also a sinner. She doesn't hate sin as much as God does. God is holy. The Bible says that he is so holy he cannot look at sin.
sin. As repulsive as the picture may have looked up there, sin is far more repulsive to God. The second is the fact that God sees infinitely closely. I can put you at a distance, so to speak. I may be thinking sinful thoughts, but not doing a sinful action. And you're not aware of it, so you're not bothered with it. But God can see my heart all the time. He can see my mind all the time when I think there's nobody there. He can see the things I do in the dark when nobody else can see those things. And that is why Jesus could say things like, hate is as bad as murder. And lust is as bad as adultery. Because God sees the heart and he sees this person committing murder and he looks at the person's heart and he sees all the hate and anger and evil thoughts from which this, this action is progressing. And then God may look here at me and I'm not picking up the knife, but I'd really like to kill you. And there's hate in my heart and God sees that same hate and to God it looks just as ugly. And that's why God cannot have a relationship with me in my sin. The fourth similarity is that it's incurable. Now, we talked about the fact that today you can cure to an extent leprosy. In those days, leprosy was incurable. You couldn't do anything about it. We'll find out Naaman couldn't do anything about it. He probably tried to do everything he could to get rid of the leprosy, and he couldn't. And the same thing is true about your sin. You cannot do anything about it. It's in you. It is part of you. Uh, I think sometimes of uh, uh, those things we can do. There may be a particular area I've seen in my life, and I can kind of try to hammer it into shape. And, but it's like those cartoons when someone has a bump on their head and you're pushing it down. It just kind of pops somewhere else. That's where sin is. It's all through us, and it reveals itself in different ways, in different people, at different times, but it is all in us, like leprosy. You cannot get rid of it. Well, the good news today, and the reason why we're looking at the passage, is God can. God can heal leprosy. We'll see it in this passage. God can heal sin. And he wants to heal your sin so that he can have this relationship with you which he created you for. So that's what we'll look at this morning. <clears throat> Okay, we're ready to continue in our chapter. We made it up to verse 2 now, but we'll move faster, I promise you. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of all his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, men of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, said, Why have you torn your clothes? Please, let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So, the first thing we see happening in the passage is uh, Naaman goes out on raids. He's raiding the land of Israel. This happens to be an enemy of the people of God, which is another neat picture here of our salvation. God saves us, his enemies. And uh, they capture a young girl and uh, bring, bring her back, and she becomes his slave. 
this young girl that he captured in his raids, becomes his slave, and she serves his wife. And um, this is an amazing young girl. Instead of her being upset at being captured and taken as a slave and trying to figure out how can she, she can slip a, a dagger between his shoulders, she notices his leprosy and how much it's affecting him and how much it was affecting his wife. And she says, there's somebody in Israel that can heal you. Which is pretty amazing when you think about the fact that no one has yet been healed by Elisha from leprosy. There is a prophet in Israel who has done miraculous things. He has never yet healed anyone from leprosy. And he never will again after he heals Naaman from leprosy. So this woman has, this young girl has quite a bit of faith in, in God and uh, what God can do through Elisha. And also the fact that he's really the enemy when you think about it. Why would Elisha heal an enemy general of his leprosy? So this is an amazing young girl. I want you to at least recognize that. Uh, so Naaman's believes, and the fact that he'll take her word suggests to me he's really been searching for a solution for his leprosy. Okay, he's, he's, he's desperate for healing. <clears throat> which is a good state to be in. If you know your state, seeking healing is a good thing. He goes to the king. The king of Syria is going to help him out. He gives him a letter of recommendation, so to speak. And he goes to the king of Israel, again, an enemy country. He reads this, brings this letter from the king, which sounds a little bit like a threat, if you would. You need to heal my servant Naaman. And uh, it's interesting to me that the king seems to completely miss the point. Here was a leper in front of him, a man that was miserable in his leprosy and asking to be healed. The king of Israel should be just as aware as, as, aware as the young girl that there is a prophet in Israel that has been doing miraculous things, miraculous healing, and yet all he can think of is that this is a context for war. He thinks this is all a trick, that Naaman was sent to him, and the whole purpose here is that by him not being able to heal this man, uh, there will be war against him by the king of Syria. Which kind of reminds me of how insensitive we can be to people that have real needs. Someone may, may be suffering, and uh, we're the person that the Lord wants to help that person, especially in coming to know him, and all we think about is how inconvenienced we are by this person. It reminds me of a song we used to sing in uh, the Bible study I was in years ago. If it's okay with you, I'll read it. <clears throat> Written by Steve Green, called People Need the Lord. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, leaving fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that people need the Lord? But too often, I am too often like the king of Israel, not being sensitive to people's needs, the fact that they need the Lord. Okay, well, uh, it doesn't fortunately end there. It would have been kind of a sad ending if Naaman would have come all the way he reaches the king of Israel, please heal me, and the king of Israel just sends him away. End of story. But that's not the end of the story because the prophet Elisha hears about this incident. He hears that the king of Israel toys clothes, and let's pick up with our reading. Verse 8. So it was that when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me. 
and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Parpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. So uh, Elisha the prophet is giving the solution. This man came all the way from Syria. He wants to be healed from his leprosy. Fine. Elisha tells him what to do. You need to go down to the river Jordan, wash yourself, dip yourself in it three times, sorry, seven times. Should I get it right? Yeah, seven times. And your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So really, here's the wonderful news. You came all this way, and yes, I can heal you from your leprosy. This is what you must do. You must follow my instructions, and then you will be healed from your leprosy. So it should be good news, right? You came all the way from Syria. You're a leper. It's, it's destroying you. And here someone is offering you the cure. And yet the amazing thing is that Naaman seems to explode in anger at this offer of healing. So, again, I want to think about the fact that there's a picture here. God has a picture of salvation. And uh, to, to help complete the picture, we, I, I want to go ahead and, and spend a couple of minutes talking about the way the instruction God has given us to be saved from our sins. Remember, God wants to save us from our sins, and he also has a set of instructions for us, just like Elisha had a set of instructions for Naaman to be healed of his leprosy, God has a set of instructions for us to be healed from our sin and be saved and have the relationship with him that he wants us to have. Uh, so the key for it, so there's two things. There's a place of cleansing. Now, Naaman had a place of cleansing. It was the Jordan River. We have a place of cleansing. In 1 Peter 2.24, we're told that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. The place you and I must go to cleansing is the cross, where Jesus died, and we're told that he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. It may not be obvious, why going to the Jordan River is going to help Naaman with his leprosy. Water doesn't have the ability of washing away leprosy. And yet, we're told that the place where we can have our, our sins taken off is the cross, and we can understand why, because God takes them off us, and he puts them on Jesus. And there on the cross, Jesus pays the full, full penalty for our sins. We must go to cleansing the place to receive cleansing is the cross of the Lord Jesus. Now, so there's a place of cleansing. Now, we're a little bit limited in going there. So if you wanted to go to the cross to receive cleansing, you first need to invent a time machine so you can go back 2,000 years and then travel 10,000 miles to Israel and hope that there's anything left there because everybody else already would have gone there if they could. But that's not what we're told. We don't have to go there like they did. Uh, there was an event in the history 
of the church where Gentiles were allowed to come in. So this is kind of in a back to Ephesians. In Ephesians, we've been studying how God's been making Jew and Gentile one in the church, and the fact both Jew and Gentile can now come and have a relationship with God, something that was hidden before. And we actually have a little bit of a picture of that with Naaman. Naaman is a Gentile, and God is bringing him into a relationship with himself. In the book of Acts, there's a, a whole story that describes how that transpired. And Peter receives a vision, and after the visions, he's summoned by soldiers. The soldiers bring him to a house of another Gentile military leader. And uh, the military leader was given a vision himself by God that if he wants to be right with God, he needs to listen to what Peter has to say. And Peter shares something with him, and then he and his family and all his friends get saved. And that's the beginning of the Gentiles coming into the church. So we know this is a way that works. This is a set of instructions that can save you from your sins. And Peter starts and he says this. Uh, this is, uh, I'll read it, I think it'll be up there. And he shares with Cornelius and the other people at his house. And he says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And Peter is here talking about Jesus, and he's going to share the core truth that Jesus died for our sins, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. He also rose from the dead. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, who was ordained by God to judge the living, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sins. So Naaman actually had to go down to the Jordan River and immerse himself in it seven times before he would receive healing from leprosy. All you have to do, it says here, is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I listened to a song recently, and that song had in it the phrase, admit, believe, and forever receive. There's three things you need to do to be saved. You need to admit that you're a sinner that needs to be saved. You need to believe that Jesus died for you on the cross and rose again from the dead, and you need to forever receive that. God is offering his salvation as a gift, and you have the choice of accepting it. Now, the interesting thing is that you'll share that with people, and usually they get very angry with you, which kind of befuddles me, except that I used to be them, one of them too, and I remember getting upset when I was told that the first time too. Um, so we have here a picture, the gospel offered to Naaman, or instructions of how to be saved from his leprosy, and he gets angry. The gospel offered to people today how they can be saved from their sins and people get angry. And there's three ways in which I see us being similar to him here uh, or, or reasons of why Naaman is getting upset and we get upset. The first one, like Naaman, we reject the message because it offends our pride. Naaman didn't like the suggestion that he was dirty and he needed to be washed. He just wanted the prophet to come, wave his wand, and he'll be healed from his leprosy. But now he has to go and wash himself. He didn't like the suggestion of being dirty. Same way, we don't like being called sinners. We don't like being told that we do wrong things. It's true. We are sinners, but we don't like being told that. That's offensive. Second, like Naaman, we think we have a better solution for our sins. Right, okay, well, maybe I am a sinner. But, you know, why do I have to go to Jesus and believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins to be saved from them? I mean, I can just go to therapy, right? 
Or maybe I just need to try a little bit harder to stop doing the wrong things I'm doing. Right? We think there's other things we can do. This is too drastic of a solution, that Jesus needs to die for my sins. That's too much. There's other ways. There's better ways. That's what Naaman said. You know, aren't these other rivers in Syria better than the Jordan? Uh, third, like Naaman, we would rather have to do something meritorious in order to be saved. That's maybe a difficult word, meritorious. We like to think that we deserve to be saved. There's something good about me or something good that I have done that can save me. And, and we see that when they, uh, his servants are reasoning with him, in verse 13, uh, it says, uh, my, they say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, if the prophet would have told uh, Naaman, Naaman, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, here's what I want you to do. Go into your next battle without your chariot and without your horsemen, and single-handedly I want you to slay a hundred of the enemies. Then you will be healed of your leprosy. I don't think Naaman would have got upset. He's like, okay, you know, here's something that I can maybe do, and it's so great that it would deserve me being healed of my leprosy. And, but he doesn't. He says, just go wash. And if God would have told us, okay, if you want to be saved from your sins, here's what you have to do. You have to go to church every Sunday, and I want you to read your Bible every day, and say your prayers before every meal, and maybe add a few more things. And if you can do that perfectly, you will be saved from your sins. That doesn't bother us as much because we're doing something that deserves being made right with God. But we're told, just believe. And that doesn't sit well with us. There's something I must do. There's something I must do to deserve it. Now, the scary thing is Naaman was about to walk away. This, again, could have been the end of the story. Naaman was so angry... He was turning and walking back to Damascus, and he could have arrived at Damascus, and his wife could have told him, well, Naaman, I guess it didn't work, huh? He went there, the prophet waved his hands over you, and he, he couldn't heal the leprosy, just another guy that failed. Naaman would have to say, well, no, actually, uh, it was me. I wasn't willing to be dipped in the river seven times. So you'll just have to live with me as a leper from now on because, you know, my pride is too important to me. I just can't, you know, accept what he told me. That was just too much. And we may laugh at that, but we do the same thing. When the gospel is being offered to us, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and all we have to do is believe, and we refuse to do it because it injures our pride, we're willing to exchange eternal life for our pride. Praise the Lord that there's servants like those of Naaman that kind of helped him see how senseless of a decision he was making. And may the Lord work in you if your pride is keeping you away from him to show you that eternal life is so much better than your pride. It's worth putting your pride down. Admit that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and forever receive the gift he has given you. <clears throat> we now have verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. And he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may 
the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried him on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant didn't go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you? When the man turned back from his chariot to meet you, is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow." So the first thing we have here is the cure. So finally, uh, Naaman followed the instruction. He went, he dipped in the river seven times, and it says he came out and his flesh was restored like a flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So the first thing to note is God is faithful to his promises. God gave a set of instructions. He said what would happen if he dipped in the river. Naaman followed the instruction, and exactly as God said, he was healed of his leprosy. You want to think about that for God's promise to you. We're told in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise from God Take it to the bank. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is faithful to his promises. He says, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call on his name, he will save you. Claim that promise. Take that step if you have not done so already. That's God's promise to you. Second thing we can consider briefly is how perfect God's salvation is. He came out with a skin as a little child. We can cure leprosy by giving somebody antibiotics, and eventually it'll kill the bacteria that's causing the lesions and the progression of the leprosy. We cannot restore the flesh of a man to be like that of a little child. God alone can do that. It's his perfect salvation. God gives us a perfect salvation uh, when I was in college, I had uh, a relationship. Uh, my first relationship, it didn't uh, go as successfully as I wished it to happen. And uh, after we broke up, 
I found that there was a hole in my heart. And I said, well, I know what to do. I just need to find another girlfriend. And uh, what I found is it was like trying to stick a square peg in a round hole. It didn't fit. Because the hole that was in my life was not really a hole for another girlfriend. It was a hole for a relationship with God. Somehow that first relationship that I had and the breaking of it uncovered a, a need I always had because God created me with that need. Now on the day that I received the Lord Jesus, that hole was filled. I was filled. It says in Ephesians that we are saved so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants to completely meet every need that you have. A relationship with him is what you created for, and a relationship with him is what you need. And God has come to give it to you, and he gives it perfectly. No matter what happened in your life, how many lesions you developed as a leper, God can fully restore that relationship with you, create that relationship with you that you've been designed to have perfect relationship with your creator is available for you today if you haven't yet entered into it. <clears throat> Third, it's interesting to note the impact of Naaman's salvation. So you would think Naaman goes into the river, he comes out, I don't know if we have the picture, and he's so happy that he gets on his horse rides his horse like mad all the way home and shows his wife, look at me, honey. But he doesn't. He instead gets on his horse and goes back to the man of God. Why? Because in the Jordan River, he found something even better than new skin. He found God. And that's what he cared about, his relationship with God. And we see it he doesn't just run there. He wants to give his treasure. Now, before, he wanted to give it in exchange for new skin. Well, now he has his new skin. There's no reason why he should give his treasure unless it's an act of worship and appreciation to the God who he has come to know. And uh, he, he can't give his treasure away. We'll talk about that in a minute. He wants dirt. He says, give me two donkeys or mules load of dirt so I can go back home and build an altar so that from now on, whenever I'm worshiping, I'm only worshiping the true God. And when I go into the temple, because that's part of my service as the general, and I help the king go in the temple, and I bow as he's bowing, please know, God, I am not worshiping that other God. It's you alone that I want to worship. He found something greater than new skin. The final thought that I have is indeed going back to the question of why is Elisha not receiving the offer? Here's these treasures this man brought with him. He wants to give it to the Lord. And he wants to give it to the Lord for the right reasons. And yet Elisha says, no, as the Lord lives, I will receive nothing. From you. And then Gehazi gets this idea and he runs back after Naaman and he make, comes up with a story of, of two other prophets showing up and needing something and he actually receives it. Naaman is happy to give. He is happy to give. And God judges Gehazi and puts upon him the same leprosy that came off Naaman. Seems a bit harsh. Actually, I shouldn't say harsh. It's not harsh. I don't want to be disagreeing with God about what Gehazi deserved. But uh, the Bible says that God's judgment is his strange work. And one of the reasons it calls it his strange work is he doesn't do it very often. You can go a lot, uh, long distance through the scriptures. People are sinning and sinning and sinning and God is not doing anything. And then somebody does something and boom, God's judgment falls on him. And God has a particular purpose in doing it. And in this particular case, <clears throat> as I believe in other places often, God is doing it because somebody is messing up the picture. 
God was painting a picture here of salvation. And in the picture of salvation, you receive nothing from the person being saved. Why? Because God's salvation is free. And here comes a man and he's messing with the picture because he's asking for something back from Naaman. And God has to show how displeased he is with it. So, in closing, I want to think three points here. Why is God so concerned with us recognizing that his salvation is free? And the first one is because of how great of a price God had to pay. God sent his son to the cross to die for you. For you to show up and say, well, it's great, Jesus paid for my sins, but here's another five bucks to help with the cost. That really devalues what Jesus did for you. And God will not accept that. The second is that God doesn't want you to confuse what he wants. On our way over here, I was uh, driving here. That's how I get to church. And uh, my wife was sitting next to me in the pilot seat. And uh, I just wanted to hold her hand. So I reached my hand toward her. And she thought I wanted something she was holding. So she put it in my hand. And I'm like, that's not what I wanted. Well, that's not what God wants from you. He's not saving you so that he can have your money or anything else that you have. He just wants you. He's putting his hand out. And he wants your hand to be placed in his hand, not your money. The third reason why I think God abhors so much the thought that we have to pay for our salvation is that it suggests some hindrance from coming to him. There's probably uh, some amount that somebody won't be able to give. Let's say Naaman, he could have probably given a million dollars. And if he came and gave a million dollars, and I don't have a million dollars to give, I can't get in. Well, let's say the amount was lowered down to $1,000. Well, I could probably give $1,000. There are some people who can't. No matter how much you're going to lower the barrier, there is somebody who cannot get into the kingdom of God if you're putting any kind of monetary requirements. Those people who all they have is the clothes on their back, or they may not even have clothes on their back. And God wants to make sure that everybody knows that they can come in. The price has been paid in full. There is no more barrier for you to come in. Let me close with this story. Miss Charlotte Elliott was visiting some friends in the west end of London, and there met the imminent minister, Caesar Milan. While seated at supper, the minister said he hoped that she was a Christian. She took offense at this and replied that she would rather not discuss that question. Dr. Milan said that he was sorry if he had offended her, that he always liked to speak a word for his master, and that he hoped that the young lady would someday become a worker for Christ. When they met again at the home of a mutual friend three weeks later, Miss Elliot told the minister that ever since he had spoken to her, she had been trying to find her savior and that she now wished him to tell her how to come to Christ. Just come to him as you are, Dr. Milan said. This she did and went away rejoicing. Shortly afterward, she wrote this hymn. I'd like to read this hymn that this young lady wrote. It's called Just As I Am. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, 
I come, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to read my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight reaches healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, Thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down, now to be thine, yea, thine alone. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. If you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus to save you, why not do it today? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we consider the fact that, that we were just as undeserving of your love and favor as this Syrian, Syrian general was. And though enemies of yours and uninterested in what you had to offer to us, Lord. <clears throat> Yet you have come into this world and bled and died on the cross of Calvary. And we are told in your word, Lord, that in that death on the cross, our sins were laid on you, and you paid for each and every one of them. And so there is for, not, for us now a place of cleansing for our sins. And Lord, that you require of us nothing more than simply believing in what you have done for us and that you will receive us if we come. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet come to you and placed their hand in your outstretched arm, Lord, we pray that you help them take that step this morning and that they might find in you indeed the fullness of God and all that you had in mind for them from before the creation of the world. Thank you, Lord, for your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen.